James White, a Revolutionary War veteran and a real estate developer, knew a good deal when he saw one. The Cherokee had backed the British in the Revolutionary War, and many whites believed that they had forfeited their right to the land beyond the Appalachians. So General White brought his family over the mountains from North Carolina and purchased a 1,000 acres along the Tennessee River. Many others followed him, and it soon became apparent that he was in the process of creating a a town, a city. And so he had his son-in-law, Charles McClung, lay out a grid of streets uh, in 64 half-acre lots. He told him to imitate the layout of Philadelphia. And on October 3rd, 1791, uh, General White held a lottery and distributed the lots. And the city of Knoxville was officially born. Now, General White was also an elder in the Presbyterian Church. And he knew he was beginning a city. And so he set aside one lot near his house for First Presbyterian Church. And I tried to find out uh, why he did that. And so I got a hold of the uh, First Presbyterian History which is called For Christ in the Heart of Knoxville. And all I found was that at the time it was his turnip patch, and he liked turnips. So we don't know exactly uh, why he did this. But we do know that Christians have been planting churches in uh, Knoxville, or rather in, in cities, since the Apostle Paul. Christians have always had a heart for the city. And one of the reasons why is because of God's words that Ray just read, Jeremiah 29, 4-7. God's people are taken into exile, and they are told, they're exhorted to go and seek the welfare, the peace of the city that they're in. The Hebrew word for welfare is shalom. It does mean peace. It means That when God's shalom comes to a city, the city flourishes, it's restored, it's redeemed, it becomes all God intends it to be. When a city experiences God's shalom, the city is healed from its brokenness. And Jeremiah 29.7 has been inspiring God's people to serve the city for thousands of years. And it's actually the verse that inspired Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church to plant All Souls Church eight years ago. And from the beginning, that's been our mission, to seek the peace of the city. Now, there, there is a passage in the prophet Isaiah that Ray read that offers seven marks of a city that's experiencing God's peace. And we're going to look at these marks later in a sermon. But tonight, I wanted to just give you a taste of what a healed city looks like. And these are the things that emerge from the text. Public celebrations and happiness good health care for all of its citizens, housing for everyone, food for everyone, economic viability, an education system that gives every child a chance, spiritual renewal, and the absence of violence. Well, if that is what God says a city ought to look like, then that is what we want our city to look like as well. And so one of the things that we're going to be doing this fall is asking the question, how do we as a congregation seek the peace of the city? How how does my particular story, my unique gifts and calling, fit into that vision that God has for a city enjoying God's peace? 
And I thought we'd start tonight by naming several of our city's wounds. Where does our city need to experience healing? Well, I think you discover the wounds of a person uh, by listening to their story. And I think the same is true with a city. And when you listen to a city's story, you begin to discern where it's been hurt and where it needs healing. This past summer, uh, Caroline Carter, Paul Hassel, and I did quite a bit of city listening. Uh, We met with historians and politicians and preachers and businessmen and activists and asked them to tell us Knoxville's story. And we asked them, what do you think the wounds of our city are? And when they were done, uh, I also spent a lot of time this summer reading different histories of Knoxville. And as we listened to our city tell its story, we identified three different wounds. And Obviously, if you went through this exercise, you'd probably come up with different wounds, but uh, I wanted to to begin our series tonight by sharing these with you. Uh, The first wound we'll call relational cutoffs. When I meet with a couple to to do premarital counseling, one of the first things that we do is a family genogram. And a genogram is a diagram where you look at the whole family system and you identify the different broken relationships in the system. And the the premise is that broken relationships in the past uh, sort of haunt the future and that you come into your present family bearing some of the wounds of your past family and living out of those wounds. And so uh, I kind of want to do a little family genogram here with the family system that is Knoxville. Now, the first example of a a relational cutoff would be the Treaty of Holston. Um, In 1791, and that's a copy of it, Uh, William Blunt, a wealthy land speculator and new governor of the Southwest Territory, met with 41 Cherokee chiefs and negotiated the Treaty of Holston. And the treaty gave uh, the Cherokee Indians the right to keep their existing settlements in and around James White Fort. Well, you, you probably know your history. Thousands of settlers kept coming over the mountains looking for land. Eventually, the Cherokee were driven off of the land Uh, And we did not keep our promises to them. And so uh, in the early years, until the Cherokee were taken to Oklahoma, uh, the tensions between uh, the Indians and and the early settlers were were not good. Another example would be the Civil War. Knoxville was one of America's most divided cities during the Civil War. And I was fascinated to read that rallies for both the Confederate and Union troops were held on Gay Street at the same time. And you can imagine the tension that that must have created. Uh, One Knoxvillian described living in Knoxville at that time as being in a reign of terror. Uh, Even families and churches were divided. And violence did break out. And this is a picture uh, in May of 1861. Unionists gathered for a rally on Gay and Main Street. And the man, you can barely see him, but he's up in the window there in the far left corner. His name was Charlie Douglas, and he was a union sympathizer. And, and as this was going on, he was jeering uh, the Confederates. And uh, someone shot him, and he died. And there were many more acts of violence to come uh, during the Civil War. There were times when armed bands of guerrillas wandered the streets. Uh, it was a terrifying time. Uh, Violence came to a terrifying crescendo on the cold night of November 28, 1863, at the Battle of Fort Sanders. Uh, The battle took only 20 minutes. Burnside's troops had uh, camped in the fort above. 
They had poured water over the hill. You can't tell as much now that there's a hill, but there is a hill there. They'd poured water on it over the night and dug hidden pits. And so when Longstreet tried to attack the fort beginning about 3 in the morning, they didn't realize it, but the whole hill was iced over. And when they did pick their way up uh, over the ice, they fell into these hidden pits. And uh, the Union troops slaughtered them. It was a casualty every second and a half. It happened on Sunday morning. A week later, if you can imagine this, on Sunday morning, Longstreet had left, and uh, churches met as usual. Remember the churches, we would be sitting in church, and we would have some for the Union, some for the Confederacy. After the service, all the Union sympathizers walked over to the fort and, and thanked God for their deliverance, and the Confederate worshipers went home. Now, another example of our um, relational cutoffs would be Kaz Walker. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Kaz. And, and I want to be careful here. One of the things I learned when I was doing studies in history in college is you always tell history from your perspective. And, and so I'm trying not to do that, but I can't help it. Um, and I want to be sympathetic to Kaz. Um, it's hard, though. Um, Kaz... Uh, Walker was the owner of a chain of grocery stores and a very controversial Knoxville figure. Uh, He was a city councilman from 1941 to 72, and he became mayor. And he symbolizes a deep relational divide that exists to to this day. Let me give you a little background, and Kaz is the one on the left. Um, During the Depression, uh, and for at least a generation before it, Poor Appalachian farmers moved to Knoxville because they could no longer make life work on the farm. And they were typically less educated and, um, and, and poor. And at the same time that the, these folks from Appalachia were moving into the city, another group was moving in to work for the university, for TVA, and then eventually Oak Ridge. And, and these, these folks had two very different sets of values. The, the folks with Appalachia, Appalachian roots uh, valued stability and permanence, and feared the changes proposed by the newcomers. And the newcomers valued growth and change. Cass called the newcomers, uh, the people that were living in new subdivisions like Sequoia Hills, way out west, uh, the silk-stocking crowd. And he resisted any effort they proposed to move the city forward. The newcomers feared that that their city was being passed by as Atlanta and Nashville and Charlotte grew. Bruce Wheeler, a historian that's written uh, widely about our city, believes that that we're still divided along these same lines, and that if if you look at the county commission and how they vote, you'll see these same divides, that the commissioners from uh, neighborhoods that have more Appalachian and rural roots vote along certain lines, and the commissioners where more newcomers have moved in out west and places like that vote for more progressive lines. And he says that that still is very much a tension in our city. Now, the next example um, is the Jim Crow laws and urban renewal. Um, Most white Knoxvillians will tell you that there are few race problems in our city. Uh, Most of my black friends believe that that they are very cut off and disempowered by our community. Now, one reason for this, I think, is because many black black Knoxvillians have not forgotten our city's racist past. Uh, The poet Nikki Giovanni was born in Knoxville, and she recalls what it was like to grow up here as a black woman in a poem called Tennessee by Birth. I was born there, 
during the age of segregation, when you couldn't go to the same amusement park, Chihaui Park then was open one day a year for blacks, or the same movie theater, when the white guys would cruise up and down the streets and call to you, when the black guys were afraid of being lynched, when Dow Drugstore wouldn't serve us, when neighborhoods were redlined. When All Souls began looking for space downtown eight years ago, we toured a lot of sites, and one of them was the Bijou. And I remember when we were checking it out to see how it would work, that I made my way up to the second balcony, which I believe is now closed. But uh, it was not open at the time, but they had stored old signs there. And I remember being shocked because one of the signs said, no blacks in the seats below. And I remember in talking with Bob Booker, a a, a civil rights activist and a a leader in our community this summer, he he remembered having to walk up the the fire escape in the Bijou uh, to see a movie while his white friends went in the the door below. Those are fresh, fresh wounds for many of our neighbors. Now, another reason why some black Knoxvillians feel cut off from the rest of our city, is urban renewal. We could talk a lot about this, but we we don't have time tonight. But urban renewal was a well-intentioned federal program, part of the war on poverty, designed to remove urban blight and clean up cities. And the first urban renewal projects in Knoxville began in 1959 over on the campus, and they ended in 1973. Now, one of the most controversial was this one. That's the Mountain View Project, I believe. And the project did away with a blighted, uh, mostly black neighborhood that existed where the Hyatt and the Civic Coliseum are today. About 2,000 black residents were moved across the city. And the all-white county commission at the time felt that they were cleaning up a poor community and giving the residents a chance to start over. But the black leaders that I have spoken with feel that urban renewal destroyed the black community in Knoxville. Businesses owned by blacks for generations, uh, movie theaters and restaurants and medical practices and bakeries were close to to enforced to move and their customer base taken away. And almost all of them collapsed. Uh, One friend of mine, an African-American pastor, called urban renewal Negro removal. Uh, That was what he felt happened. Uh, Nikki Giovanni wrote a poem called Gemini, where she remembers her grandmother's home being destroyed to make way for an off-ramp. So so these are deep wounds that have caused a relational cutoff uh, between blacks and whites in our community. Now, the last example I'll give of of relational cutoff is the 1954 Interstate Act. Uh, This act paved the way for decades for massive highway projects that made an automobile-crazed society very good at getting around quickly. And it made it very easy to live in the suburbs and avoid the taxes and increasing crime in the city. And planners thought that the inner city was, in effect, dying, so they they really didn't think much about what happened to neighborhoods when you put a, a highway through it. And in effect, as you can see in this picture that Becky Hancock provided, what happened was these neighborhoods were sliced into pieces. Um, that's a, a before and after of a, of a house that was in the way of, of the interstate. So these are just a few examples of our relational cutoffs.
And as a result, we have often been a city that struggles to work well together, a divided city. Bruce Wheeler went so far as to say in our interview, I don't even think Knoxville is a city. I think it's a cluster of neighborhoods who don't communicate very well with one another. And our unresolved conflicts still haunt us. We tend to distrust one another. We can be suspicious of one another. We can have difficulty working together for the common good. Now, there are a lot of encouraging signs, and we're going to talk about those a lot this fall. Uh, But for now, let me just make the observation that we seek the peace of the city whenever we work towards reconciliation, collaboration, unity, and forgiveness. Now, here's the second wound. The first is relational cutoffs. The second wound that we heard as we listened to the city tell her story this summer is identity confusion, or if you're looking for another term, insecurity. And this goes way back to our beginning. When you listen to Knoxville tell her story, you, you hear a, a city trying to define herself. You, it's like listening to a, a, an awkward teenager who's uncomfortable with who he is and embarrassed by his goofy parents and uh, always comparing himself to someone else. When you listen to her tell her story, Knoxville often wishes she was someone else, some other city. Let me, let me kind of trace the history uh, that, that leads to this. When Charles McClung laid out our first city streets, he didn't ask, you know, I wonder what kind of city plan would best fit this lovely rolling hill by the Tennessee River. He said, well, Philadelphia is a cool city. Let's look like it. And that's why our streets are named what they're named for. William Blunt, in an effort to flatter his boss, the Secretary of War, Henry Knox, named the new city Knoxville. And he hoped that that would earn political favors and, and get Knox to visit. But Knox never visited and never gave any favors. Blunt did succeed in getting Knoxville named the capital of the new state of Tennessee. But the honor was taken away in 1817 when the capital moved to Murfreesboro. By the middle of the 19th century, Knoxville thought it was once again poised for greatness. And I saw this over and over again in my research, that that we'd kind of get all excited and we're going to be this and we're going to do this. And then uh, city leaders had worked hard to bring a major railroad into the city and build new factories. And then you know what happened in the Civil War. Both armies set up camp uh, near the city during the winter of 1863 and 64. We were the focal point of a prolonged siege in October. And when Longstreet's troops finally abandoned the city, the railroad lay in ruins, and so did many of the new factories. Well, Knoxville bounced back. They recovered from the Civil War. And it's interesting, by the dawn of the 20th century, Uh, We appeared once again to be a city destined for greatness in the New South. The talk was that Knoxville would be the next Atlanta, the new jewel on the crown of the New South. Uh, New factories were opened. Many African-Americans moved in. The population grew ninefold between 1860 to 1900. Yet once again, the dream didn't come true. Uh, There was a million-dollar fire, a lot of dollars in 1897, on Gay Street that just destroyed the business community. 
And at that time, too, everything was fired by coal. Coal soot covered streets and buildings. The downtown became a filthy place. And so new streetcar lines were put in to allow wealthier citizens to escape to new suburbs like Fourth and Gill and Fort Sanders. Racial tensions grew and clan membership increased. And city leadership became insular and self-protective. Now, in 1946, uh, the well-known travel writer John Gunther devastated Knoxville's self-image. He visited here for a couple of days, and he wrote in his best-selling travel book, Inside USA, Knoxville is the ugliest city I've ever seen in America, with the possible exceptions of some mill towns in New England. Its main street is called Gay Street. This seems to me a misnomer. It's one of the least orderly cities in the South. Knoxville leads every other town in Tennessee in homicides, automobile thefts, and larceny. So that's not really what you want your Chamber of Commerce to uh, be handing out to companies moving here. But Knoxville's tough. Knoxville fights back. That's when we started the uh, Dogwood Arts Festival, is to say, you know, that's not who we are. We live in a beautiful place, and so that's what they started to do. But the middle years of the 20th century still saw downtown slowly dying. And this happened in cities all over America, but anybody that could fled the city and moved to the suburbs. And so city leaders desperately searched for a project to revive the city. And here's, here's the project they found, the World's Fair. Uh, the leader they found to do it with a wealthy banker named Jake Butcher. And the fair, dubbed Expo 82, opened on May 1st, 1982, Over 11 million visitors came through the gates over the next six months. Uh, The Radisson, Hilton, and Holiday Inn were all built uh, to house the crowds. Uh, And one historian observes for a brief moment, Knoxville's inferiority complex was forgotten. (laughs) And then the day after the World's Fair closed, 180 FDIC bank examiners descended upon Jake Butcher's $3 billion banking empire and discovered, in the words of U.S. Attorney John Gill, that Butcher was, quote, the biggest thief in the history of Tennessee, unquote. 6,000 people lost their savings in unassured accounts. Dozens of businesses failed. Lawrence Tulloch, uh, one of our board members, prosecuted him. Now, as I listened to our city tell her story this summer, uh, the figure that best came to represent our civic insecurity was the profit. Uh, Each October, the prophet came down from the mountains and made an appearance at the fall carnival. He wore a long white beard, carried a staff, wore a long robe decorated with astrological symbols, and two long horns curled from his head. And a reporter writing in 1897 explained that his home is, as it has been for ages, in the heart of the Great Smokies, far up the steeps amid the eternal blue of everlasting peaks and ranges above the thunder and the storm. And the prophet would come down. No one ever figured out who he was or where he came from. And he would say flattering things about Knoxville. And he also became famous for his prophecies. This was in the early you know, 1910, 1912. He prophesied that women would get the vote, that a great highway system would one day link Knoxville with the rest of the country. He also said, yes, as in the olden time, all roads led to imperial Rome. So in time to come, All roads in this splendid section shall lead to queenly Knoxville. Now, when I read Jack Neely's column, uh, who else would find the prophet other than Jack Neely? Um, 
about this mysterious figure wandering down the mountain every 20 years to tell the city that she was going to be the next Rome. Now, I thought of that insecure person at the party that is always telling you just how wonderful they are and, and all the neat things they're going to do next. And, and I thought um, of the times in my own life when I wished I was someone else, uh, someone smarter or faster or braver, uh, and I felt sad for our city. How does a city heal from the wounds of shame and insecurity? Well, I think it's the same way that people do, by God's grace. We begin to accept ourselves for who God made us to be and quit trying to be somebody else. And we start to celebrate who we are, not who we're not. And, and I think this is happening. We're going to talk about this later on too. But we are starting to understand that this place matters. We're starting to celebrate our unique buildings and spaces If you walk through Market Square on a Friday night, you don't feel that it's a city trying to be something it's not. We've become a center for bluegrass. We're starting to celebrate our own local farmers and shopkeepers and restaurants. We have a renewed appreciation for our beauty and our building parks and, and bike trails. The last wound that I'd like to suggest to you is a little harder to put your finger on, but I'll try. And we'll call it apathy. Uh, A reporter from Fortune magazine visited Knoxville in 1952 and summed us up like this. Almost everyone thinks something should be done, but nobody does anything much. They like it fine the way it is. And more recently, a writer from the New York Times spent a weekend in our city talking to locals and concluded... Knoxville is a place too unassuming to shout about, but too comfortable to leave. Knoxville cheerfully ensconced in the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains and banked against the Tennessee River has an intrinsically lazy, soulful feel. The geography is soft, green, and rolling. The climate is gentle, breezy, and bright. Locals tend to be not just friendly, but chilled out, too. (laughs) I spoke with a community leader who'd been in political leadership for a long time, and now he consults in cities around the country, and I asked him to compare our city with others, and he said the main difference is that Knoxville's never had a crisis. He said for a city to change, it has to go through a crisis, and things have never gotten that bad around here. And I heard that sentiment expressed over and over again this summer. And actually, I've spent half my life here. I don't really know other cities, but I've spent 25 years here. And I've heard that again and again. Knoxville's good enough. Why change anything? Why, why pay the price to make it different? And so, uh, as a result of this apathy, only a few of us vote. Only a few of us run for office. And when a change is proposed, our leaders often vote it down. Uh, Entrepreneurs have a hard time finding startup capital. Uh, We don't worry about a failing urban school when our kids are doing fine and they're a suburban one. And we demand excellence from our football team but accept the status quo in just about everything else. Well, these are the wounds that uh, we discerned as we tried to listen to the city tell her story this summer. The rest of the fall will... I want you to keep those in mind as we think about how we might heal the city. Relational cutoffs, identity confusion, and apathy. I want to end by giving you two kind of things to think about. The first is, 
that just as in our personal families, we're all shaped by the family system of this city. And one of the things you can start to do is look at the ways that you participate in our city's woundedness. Look at the ways that you participate in our city's sin. Um, where are you carrying on this spirit of relational cut, cutoffs? Uh, where are, are you uh, failing to, to step out and be all who you can be and trying to be instead someone else? Um, where are you being crippled by apathy uh, and a lack of hope when God's put a vision on your life to do something in our community? So that's the, that, there is a measure of repentance that can take place when we look at our city. We, we don't just wag our fingers at those that have gone before. We carry this out. You live out a system's dysfunction and sin. And so let's try to identify ways that we are doing that. Well, lastly, let's begin this journey together by remembering an important spiritual truth. You can only give away what you have. Uh, you have to have peace in order to make peace. And w- what strikes me as we look at these three wounds is that they are exactly the, the wounds that the gospel heals. And that when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, he heals your relational cutoff with God. He gives you an identity as his beloved son or daughter of the king. And he gives you hope and a vision and a redemptive purpose for your life. And so if, if you want to be active in seeking the peace of the city and, and overcoming relational cutoffs and, and helping the city embrace its identity and helping the city find its purpose and vision, then you need to have a real relationship with Jesus Christ where that's happening in your own life. Let's pray.